You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. I thought I might improvise a an opening theme for our podcast episode, I don't know. <laughs> Matt and Megan talking about bad adaptations of books that we read that were turned into TV shows or that were turned into movies or other things, mostly TV shows. This is really hard. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Da-da-da. His Dark Materials sucks. It sucks. It fucking sucks. His Dark Materials fucking sucks. Except like the last five minutes of the show, which, uh, you know, made up for the rest of it, I guess, maybe a bit. Anyway. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Ono Lit Class March Mini Madness 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 Madness. Thank you. You are like the only guest who's taken me up on that so far who has joined in. And that beautiful, wonderful, amazing intro was brought to you by our guest today because I, I obviously am Megan and I'm here with Matt, uh, also known as the Narcissist Cookbook. Hello. Yes, Matt, who you may remember from, honestly, was one of my favorite episodes. The the Lion, the Briss, and the Wardrobe, our, our episode on the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Matt has so graciously returned, even after we ruined his, <laughs> one of his favorite childhood books. Yeah, we've, we're going to shake up the, we're going to, sh- we're going to shake things up this time and only talk about things I hate to begin with. So, you know, there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> there we go. Yes, so uh, we are going to be talking about, well, I mean, actually, you, you explained it in the song pretty well. We're going to be talking about adaptations of books and how much his dark materials suck. That's, I mean, that's that's my point of rage. That's my that's the passion that I'll be drawing on to get me get me through the next, the recording session, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where you're going to be pulling all of your, your energy from. <laughs> So, yeah, obviously, book adaptations are generally, at best, a mixed bag because it's very difficult to take something like a book and condense it into an hour and a half, two hours. There's always going to be something that you lose. And so you would assume that the miniseries is a really good format for a book, that it, it lets it, it gives it space, it lets it breathe, especially for novels that might be more sort of episodic in their plot nature. I've always complained that the Harry Potter series was much more suited to a miniseries than a movie. 100%. I mean, there, there is going to be a Harry Potter miniseries at some point when people have gotten some distance from the movies and realized that the movies suck. That, oh, that's, that's such a strong opinion that I have. I don't, yeah. No, the, no, the, movie, the movies suck. <laughs> they, they totally do. I mean, the movies, the Harry Potter movies are illustrations for the book, I think, at best. I don't know. In my estimation, that's what they are. But yeah, there's, good, there's definitely going to be a, a, a miniseries for it. At some point, surely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't think saying that the movies suck is like a super hot take anymore. I feel like we're pretty much gonna have people agreeing with that. But we're not talking. We're talking about sort of the the anti, or we're, one of the things we're going to be talking about is sort of the anti Harry Potter. It was one of the books that came on where people were like, "Do you like Harry Potter? Then you'll probably like his Dark Materials." And <sighs> I only read the first one, The Golden Compass, and then I kind of fell off oh no and then i saw i I did see the movie and the only thing i remember about the movie is 
giant polar bears in full armor fighting each other, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's the only thing I remember about it. And I just know, and I don't feel like it's spoiling anything to really say so, that it was anti-Harry Potter and like, Harry Potter, magic, wonder, whimsy. And his Dark Materials was like, let's go kill God. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, oh my God, I love the His Dark Materials series so much. Before I start, oh, I can feel it like a coiled spring of, of white hot hate in my heart. <laughs> like it wants to just, um, to enthuse about the books. Like the books as a whole are just so fantastic. They have one of the best realized child characters in fiction as far as i'm concerned is in 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 lyra bell aqua i really need to go back and read them and give them a proper shot well because she's just she's a little shit like she's a liar and she's manipulative and she 100 percent uses that for evil to begin with just just like a 12 13 year old would but she grows and develops into this really really complicated character and the world is beautiful the idea of everyone having these externalized souls in the form of animals is just gorgeous and the idea that the, the story takes place across hundreds of different worlds and universes at once and it's so well realized and it gets really political when it turns out that the plot is that a small group of people want to assassinate God and it's just it sounds ridiculous <laughs> but it works so well it's really really it's very 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 good and I was so so excited when they announced that they were going to be doing a mini series of it because I like you thought or oh, mini series is perfect it'll be three series three series three seasons <laughs> nah series is and that will be perfect but they fucked it and they got what's her name they got daphne they got what's her name yeah they got that they had such a good cast uh yeah they got daphne Ke i want to say keen i can't but the, they got the little girl from logan who was incredible yeah. in logan they had james mcavoy they had i can't think of the name of the actress who plays uh mrs what's her face um oh, but she's fantastic but she's another good one and lin-manuel miranda who's just <sighs> everywhere these days <laughs> this is my first like i mean i've listened to the hamilton soundtrack and stuff but like this is my first run-in with lin-manuel miranda and lin-manuel miranda has the really unfortunate job of having to play the role the, so in the film adaptation they did back in like 2005 there was only one good thing about that film adaptation and it was the guy playing lee scoresby who's the character that lin-manuel miranda is playing the guy playing lee scoresby in the film was fucking amazing and lin-manuel miranda is sort of playing this sort of han solo character but he's got it's it's a han solo character with the sort of lin-manuel miranda-ness about him and i don't know i don't think yeah he's not a very han solo kind of dude he's really not a han solo -y kind of dude and it doesn't super work for me but that's this i mean this is this is we might as well like pull this blaster off real quick all right i think the main problem is when you have a book series that you love or you have a book that you love the idea of them being able to adapt that into something that you actually like it's good the, the chances of them getting it right is so small because you have this idealized version of it in your head and they are going to be taking all of those abstract ideas and solidifying it down and it's probably just going to piss you off it's probably just going to piss you off fair <laughs> okay here are my issues with the his dark materials tv series the cast is great but the writers don't seem to know what they're doing with it because the first book is entirely told from the perspective of lyra 
And then in the second book, everything just expands outwards and you have entire chapters told from different characters' perspectives. But they don't do that for the first book. But they seem to be scared of the idea of having the entire series told from the perspective of a child. So they come up with these entirely new sections of story that don't work. They bring in characters, they bring in characters and plot lines an entire season too early which spoils huge surprises like one of the by the way spoilers for his dark materials the twist at the end of the first book is that there are parallel dimensions and they bring that twist in in the first episode of the series i don't know it really it really pissed me off Here's here's my main issue with it. Cause I went back and listened to the audiobook. There's a really really good full cast audiobook of his dark materials, and the dialogue in the book they adapted it to literally. The dialogue in the book reads well, but when you put those words in people's mouths, it doesn't really work. So what happens is you have these amazing actors like James McAvoy and Daphne Keane playing these amazing complicated characters. But the dialogue they are given is so literal and on the nose. Like, you've got James McAvoy just saying, I am angry at you. I don't think I can forgive you for the thing you have done. And Lyra saying, but I miss you and you've never been around. And the thing is, they could communicate all of these things with a look. And that would be, that's that's the strength of a visual adaptation. The strength when you have such an amazing cast is that you can communicate these things with a look absolutely they don't trust their actors to do that they just give them these lines of dialogue which are completely pointless and don't have any reason to exist in a tv show and it frustrated me because as with all of these things as with jonathan strange and mr norrell which i also loved the book and hated the tv series (laughs) there's just no see um I'm on I'm on opposite end of that one because I couldn't really make it through the book because it's a it's a big postmodern doorstop of a book and like I can appreciate what it's doing and how it it uses world building but it's just so big and and just a lot and so then it was like ooh mini I could just watch this mini series and and you know look and look at some of the pretty men in it <laughs> Because I and and pretty women because I'm just shallow. <laughs> so you dug the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell series? Yes, but that was also because I didn't quite make it through the whole book, so it, it was just kind of like this is more digestible. But one of the things you said uh, made me think of another adaptation where I like the movie more than the book, actually. Where what you talked about that, like, a lot of times... uh, Okay, wait, I've got, like, three things. So the first thing is what you said. Like, sometimes dialogue transitioning does not work and being sort of slavishly or slavishly, whatever, uh, faithful in that way can backfire. We just kind of talked about in our recent episode on If Beale Street Could Talk that... A lot of the dialogue and even just sections of the book are very lyrical, they're very dreamlike, and that works well when it's being read. When you have a teenage girl character saying it, she doesn't sound like a person. And so in that case, being super faithful may not work as well. And so one of the things I thought of that's the opposite of that is the book Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan uh, Safran Foer. Uh, and I had to read that for my literature and film class, and I hated it because he's a fucking pretentious ass. And that's my that's my hot take. But I love the movie. I think the movie's great. I think the characters are so endearing. I think when you take away the narration and the internal monologue, it's better. And so many things in that movie are conveyed without any dialogue. That it's just like, because you have this grandfather character, and his whole story is 
conveyed almost entirely wordlessly just through visuals and like you said like looks between actors facial expressions but just I think everything is illuminated as a really good example of adapting a book and making the most of like we are changing you know that this is a movie visual medium I, no I think you're exactly right like there are strengths that novels have the strength that a novel has is that you can essentially stop time and take for it like Jonathan Strange is a really good example of this you can stop time in the story and then spend 10 pages talking trying to get a specific idea across the strength of a movie is that you have visuals sound and acting which means that you have a sort of human empathy there that you don't really have with novels and you can you have to use your strengths and if you're trying to just transplant what the novel does into a movie without thinking about how to do that it's going to fall on its arse and it sounds like the director of everything is illuminated actually understood how to take the the core of the story and turn it into something that actually worked was it ron howard that did everything is illuminated i don't know uh leave leave schreiber oh, okay cool but- <laughs> i think it's like the only movie he's directed there's one sequence in his dark materials that made me glad they made the series and it wasn't in the books and it's a sequence where mrs coulter has just lost her daughter she is a very powerful woman but is again i don't want to give too much away but she's a very complex character and the the sequence that they add in in the tv show that isn't in the book is just her out on the balcony of her city center flat of her pent of her penthouse apartment and she's standing on the edge of the balcony drinking and at one point she gets up and she's sort of tightrope walking along the edge of the balcony clearly showing that she has some sort some sort of death wish and her demon who's her soul in animal form is not on the balcony with her her demon is inside behind a pane of glass and looks frightened when this is happening and sort of like looks like he wants to go out and like help her but also doesn't know how to help her and the i that that tells you so much about what a soul is in this world and what Mrs. Coulter has done to distance herself from who she actually is and the ways that she's had to punish herself and silence herself to live with the things that she has done and the side effect being that now she has now she's completely self-destructive and her soul can't even talk to her anymore and that is a really powerful sequence and it's not in the book that that almost like that legit kind of gave me goosebumps yeah it's a really it's really good (laughs) just just that description but they don't the, the rest of that approach isn't seen in the rest of the series and it just bothers me it's like the writers didn't really understand what to do with this world and that's fine because it's a difficult thing to adapt i just wish that we'd had better people working on it i suppose what a, what a, I, I'm sorry if you're if you're listening to this and you worked on that show. I'm sure you did. I'm 100 percent sure you did your best. The see the, the the production design was brilliant. The special effects were great. Although let me talk about the special effects for a moment. So <laughs> so I was gonna say Lin Manuel Miranda. If you're listening, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I, again, well, that's the thing, guys. I keep forgetting that Lin Manuel Miranda was in it, and Lee Scoresby is one of the best characters. And Lin Manuel Miranda didn't make an impact on me, which is just ah. So the special effects are core to his dark materials. In a lot of ways, that show is just a CGI artist's fucking nightmare because it's a period drama mm-hmm. in which every single character has an animated talking animal that is with them twenty four hours a day and cannot leave their side. <laughs> like that's there's 
Yeah. So it's a it's a complete fuck. And on top of that, you have angels and you have bear wars and you have flying battle balloons. And the fact is that they dealt with it in the best way they could, which is they took their HBO BBC budget and they said, right, well, let's give these char- this character a really good demon and this character a really good demon. But you're in a city and there are parts when you're walking through a city and you can't see a single animal. You can't see... A, and that goes against the entire idea of what this world is meant to be. Right. It ruins the whole illusion when you run through these crowded spaces and don't see a single other demon. Ah! Anyway, so it just... I'm, but, but I know that they did their best. They did their best. What else can you do? Ah, I'm so mad. <laughs> There's just so much. Like, I feel like you just convey everything in those those angry noises. <laughs> yeah, if you want to edit down this episode to just me going, his dark materials. Ah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there we go. We did it. We got it. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Megan. Still under quarantine and still in a closet and still sexy as hell. I'm just gonna come out and say it. Um, I'm just popping in here real quick to first give a shout out to our newest, wonderful, beautiful, amazing patron member, Kathleen. Hi there, Kathleen. Thank you. And also, uh, so this episode, me and Matt, if you have not been able to tell so far, uh, go so far off the beaten trail, get so deep in the weeds and have such a good time doing it that uh, we totally forgot to have him plug what he does. So I'm just popping in here real quick to do that. Uh, Matt makes music under the name of the Narcissist Cookbook, and you can find that at NarcissistCookbook.Bandcamp.com. You can find him on Spotify. He has a Facebook page, and he's on Twitter at NarcissistCook, where he tweets a whole bunch of goofy stuff his music is amazing that's how we became friends actually which is pretty cool uh he just put out an album recently that i think i talked about it a few episodes ago i don't know time isn't real it's called him 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 there's just no good way to pronounce it but definitely go check it out and there matt hopefully i've made that up to you my grim duty is done and y'all can get back to the episode now bye what was the one that I was going to talk about before? Oh, that's right. The the fucking the seeker and the dark is rising. God. So, the dark is rising is a uh, a uh, Jesus, how many of them are there? I ha- actually have them out because I packed away what most of my books, but I wanted to keep some because like when I was packing, I was like, "Man, I haven't read this in like forever. Like I want to reread this." And um how many I think I've read the first one. I think I've it's the first. It's all it's all Arthurian legend, isn't it? And it's it's the and it's this yeah. it's this group of kids who go to like a seaside town or something like that. Yeah, that's that's the first one, and it's it's technically a prequel. I don't think it's the first one that came out, but yeah, it's the the dark uh, the dark is rising sequence. It's five books. It's about Arthurian legend. It is very metaphorical for children's books um in in the actual book the dark is rising not a lot happens like there is an ancient evil there is a a a whole mystical destiny that is revealed to this child but it's still like a very it's a very quiet book but it none like nonetheless it it carries so much weight like it's it's so hard to explain reading it is like it's almost like having like a very vivid dream 
where everything sort of carries like a secondary meaning. Oh God, it's so hard to explain. It's just, it's not a very plot heavy series per se, but although it gets more as it goes on and more children show up and, you know, it gets very questy and all the children, you know, bicker because they're like 12 or whatever. But the first book, well, technically the second book is, it's just a really gorgeous book. And they, they made a movie out of it and they were like, well, this just won't do. We need shit to happen. And it's so bad. And it's, oh, God. So, like, the, the, and the, oh, and the, some of the biggest change, like, some of the changes that are the most aggravating are, make no sense. So, this is about, it's a British novel. It's about Arthurian legend. And the main character, Will, is, of course, you know, a British kid, but they were like, no. How will children relate to such a thing? Let's make him an American kid, but we're still going to have him in England. That he was trans he's transplanted, that his dad had to go there to, to work, and he's in England now. And a big thing in the book is that he's part of a very big family. And his family is great. They all love each other and support each other so much. And that's like a big thing in the book. And the movie was like, but what if his family was Ugh. shitty? What if all of his siblings were dead? dicks and so he feel because i guess they feel like oh if he's gonna be the chosen one he's got to feel alienated on like so many levels and it's like no supportive siblings you lazy fucking hacks and let's let's make the entire movie a fetch quest and let's make his mentor fucking ian mcshane who stopped caring about acting uh, basically everything after deadwood he just is like i don't have to give a shit anymore <laughs> and he doesn't that this came just after the success of Narnia, didn't it? I believe yeah. so. I think I'd have to, yeah. I'd, but what's funny about it is that I saw the trailer and I was like, "This seems kind of interesting." Oh, it's based on a book. Let me go read that book. Read the book. Loved the book. Got real hype for the movie, and then the movie just absolutely sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and it's they were hoping, I'm assuming, to have a new sort of Narnia. I mean, also the Narnia films were following the Lord of the Rings and they were trying to force Narnia into the, the gap that Lord of the Rings had left. And then they were trying to... Oh, absolutely. Just at the baby Lord yeah, of the Rings. Yeah, and then they were trying to make The Dark is Rising sort of fit into... that. Yeah, I don't know. It does feel like a lot of the time when you have hundreds and hundreds of people working on a movie, like you can't expect all of them to understand this story that was written by one person, you know? So I suppose... I don't know. How do you fix that? Do you just do you just rely on auteurs? While you've been telling this story, I was thinking, man, if I was a Bloomberg-style billionaire, I would just liquidate all my assets and just be like, I'm going to spend $100 million on making an adaptation of this, of The Dark is Rising, you know, for the, for the 2,000 <laughs> people who would like that, I'm going to do a really good one, you know? <laughs> Oh yeah, that would be so good. Yeah, if I just had if I just had a fuck ton of money, it's like, all right, we're gonna start making we're gonna start making the good versions of things <laughs> of stuff that I like. If other people like them, this is incidental. This is for me. <laughs> so, is there conflict and stuff in the book? Like in the book, The Dark is Rising, is there enough conflict to turn it into an entertaining movie? There is conflict, but a lot of it is just this sort of like shadowy behind the scenes thing that you, it's this idea of this 
fight that has been happening for uh, millennia and it's by these like people that are called like the old ones and Will who again is like 12 or 13 is going to be his destiny is to be the last sort of old one and that him sort of having to like sort of transition into that and learning this knowledge and then there's this other character running around who's like a a warped version of that and here's the problem I'm also talking about a book that I have not read in years and years which is why I have it out to reread it and so a lot of my memory of it isn't perfect but like I said plot wise it's just very quiet um there is a villain he is defeated in a fairly quiet way because that's like not the point the the point is to kind of show this sort of disappearing world and explore like Arthurian myth and it and expands as the series goes it gets more active and we get a lot of time travel and there's time travel I think in in the first one also in the dark is rising but like it's yeah yeah I think he goes back in time and then he sees like a blacksmith and that's how he gets like a weapon or something it's it's really cool I don't know it's I'm having I'm doing a very poor job of selling it it's just it's a very atmospheric book I actually ended up reading another one by her uh Susan Cooper is the author where a kid who's a an actor who's part of a revival of like the royal shakespeare company but they're trying to do it with like an all boys like group and they're performing it in a replica of the globe theater and he just gets sort of rocketed back in time to like shakespeare's time can i just say it sounds from the way you were describing the story the idea that there's this this world that's disappearing and someone from the modern world is is kind of tasked with diving back into this world that's disappearing sounds like a metaphor for you know old stories being lost and old culture being lost and i love the idea that hollywood responded to that by being well how about you know we make the lead character an american boy and how about we <laughs> you know <laughs> Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely, yeah. 100%. <laughs> but yeah, King of Shadows is a really, really good book where this kid's in, like, Shakespeare's time, where it's, again, that there's really not, like, a super intense conflict. The conflict is that he lost his dad. Uh, I think, like, his dad, like, committed suicide or something that's, like, very heavy for what is explicitly a children's book and that he ends up sort of imprinting on William Shakespeare. Is like you are you are new daddy and Shakespeare. This also like takes place after he's lost his son Hamnet, and so he's just kind of like, yes, you are new son. Shakespeare called his son Hamnet. Yeah, man, it's yeah. <laughs> it was before he wrote Hamlet too, if I recall. Uh, we talk about it in our Hamlet episode. I don't remember quite exactly, but then like he gets pulled back to the present and he has to deal with what feels like kind of losing his father like a second time. It's just, again, it's just a really beautiful book that has no right to be as good as it is when the plot is like, this kid's going back to Shakespeare times. This sounds, that that story sounds wild. That's like, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Again, it's called King of Shadows. I 100% recommend it. The, the cover on the book is that I bought because I ordered it like just off of like a, a secondhand uh, thing online. The cover's awful because like the top half, it's like a kid who's like transitioning between one world and another. And the top half has like a, a ruffled Victorian collar and like puffy sleeves. And the bottom half is jeans and he's like standing on a skateboard. Oh no! And it, it makes I was you, just thinking yeah, about it, how- it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it makes you think it's just going to be like, and, and I looked it because I, I got it purely on the fact of i love these other books let's see what else susan cooper has and i was like oh no is this going to suck and it's like no it's just a horrendous cover 
when you started describing the cover with him being in like ruffled at the top, I was gonna jump in and be like, "Oh, let me guess." And at the bottom, he's like wearing jeans and he's got like a skateboard that says "Totally Rad" on it. And then you were just like, "Yep, that's, ex- that's exactly what's there." <laughs> you are exactly right. Perfect. This went so far off the rails. I don't know if you had more to say on on this. We can jump back and forth, but I I just remembered an adaptation from a book to a movie that I think did a really good job, or at least an interesting job that I think is worth mentioning. Let's do it. Let's let's end on a positive note. Yeah, which is World War Z, which is not a great movie. It is by it is far from a great movie. I don't know if you've seen it or, or not. <laughs> no, no, I have not. I'm not a big zombie movie person. Have you read the book? No, my brother had those. He loves uh, the Max Brooks. Yeah. Uh, zombie ones but i i personally have not read them now so the book's really interesting because the book is told after the zombie apocalypse has happened and been beaten so it it takes place like post post apocalypse the world has been decimated but humanity has beaten the zombies and lots of people died but everything's pretty much fine and it's told in the form of a government report and the government report is interviewing people from across the world and building a timeline of events by interviewing different people who were in different places during the outbreak from the very very beginning of it to the very very end it's super it's a super interesting book that's a really cool structure i'm i'm into that yeah and like the audiobook's interesting because they get like Henry Rollins and Simon Pegg and Mark Hamill in to read different characters. Oh my god, that rules. Yeah, so it's really cool. And I and how do you turn that into a movie? Like you can there's two ways you turn that ah. into there's two ways you like visually adapt that. One of them is you make it into a sort of documentary series with talking heads. Yeah, that's what I would think of that you would do it like um what's his name? Those Christopher Guest movies, like Best in Show and like A Mighty Wind, except less funny, more more zombie y. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like that would be a way of doing it. But that would be like a really like people talk about faithful adaptations a lot as if faithful adaptation means to transplant something literally and i think that's the point we're trying to make is that that isn't what faithful adaptation should mean a faithful adaptation should be something that understands the material and understands how to take the core story and the core themes and tell it in a different way in a different medium you can tell a completely different story with completely different characters and still have it be a faithful adaptation you know at its extreme and that's what world war z does like world war what world war z does is it doesn't have any of the characters from the book it doesn't have the it doesn't even have the author who is a character in the book because he's interviewing the subject it has this guy who i think is i can't remember what i mean it's brad pitt but i can't remember (laughs) i I think he's i think he's a doctor or he's a documentary filmmaker or something like that and it just tells his story you know it just tells his story as part of the this world and it visits things like it visit they visit tel aviv because that's like one of the the areas in the book and they give him a reason to be there but he's not documenting like he's on his own personal story the the idea being that you've got the the book world war z and you've got the film world war z and it's like the film world war z just acts as a chapter within the book that doesn't exist they chose to adapt it by just saying well we can't have all these different unrelated characters so let's have one character who is in some of these places doing some of the things and maybe the other characters from the book are out there doing their own thing but this guy is doing his thing and it works within the timeline of the book without contradicting anything from the book and a lot of people got mad about the adaptation because they were like this is nothing like the book and I quite like the adaptation because it's like for me it's very like the book it's just one person's story alongside all the 
of the other one one person stories from the book so that's i'm not saying it's a great movie it's just that seems like it was made by someone who understands right how to transplant a complex idea that only works in written form into a visual form okay yeah all right i, I get that yeah that it, it, it takes like the the context and it's kind of cool that it's like it's almost turning the book then into like a multimedia sort of experience that could be like complemented by this other story yeah which is interesting i can dig that i mean it also <laughs> it basically just turns it into a zombie movie and i think like maybe one way to argue against that would be to say that world war z the book was a subversion of zombie movie stereotypes whereas the zombie whereas world war z is just a zombie movie that unsubverts everything and just turns it into a zombie movie but like i don't know i it, it kind of it worked for me and it, it, i was glad that they didn't try and actually adapt the source material and they just you know right yeah no my my big one because i it's very rare for me to when i say that a, a book is better or a movie is better than a book like everything is illuminated is a big one for me and the other one which a lot of people don't even realize is the thing is the princess bride mm. i i think you would be hard pressed to find someone who is not a fan of the princess bride film and if you did i feel like they wouldn't be a fun person I feel like you, you guys, <laughs> I, I, you know what, uh, other people that are probably going to like come for me and be like, hey, fuck you. But like, if you can't enjoy The Princess Bride, I feel like you're probably not a super fun person to be around if you're going to be critical of that movie. Because it, it, it's it's such a joyful experience. What age were you when you first saw The Princess Bride? Um, I want to say around either 9 or 10. Cool. Just to kind of give context, Labyrinth I saw for the first time when I was like, 18 and princess bride i saw for the first time when i was about 21 so those are like weird ages to come to those movies and but i but princess bride is so good and you're completely right it's so good that even coming to it as an adult i was like this movie's fucking excellent it, it transcends like kids movie and just becomes a great movie yeah no absolutely but so you've read the princess bride book yes and that is a wholly different experience so the conceit of the princess bride book is that there is a man, William, the, the author of the book itself, William Golding. It's extremely postmodern, which if you have listened to any of this show, you know that that's like my trigger word, where it's like, nope, I'm not going to fucking like this, and I usually don't. I do own the book. Well, because I got it as a gift, actually, if I recall. But anyway, so William Golding, who was the actual author of the book, and I think he just recently passed away. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. If he recently passed away, that sounds like a, an Ono Lit class episode waiting to happen. It does. Uh, the conceit is that he's writing the real history of these two kingdoms, uh, Gilder and Flor Florin or something like that. But... He, in trying to write this story, and, and oh yeah, that he's adapting a story originally written by S. Morgenstern, who is the true writer of The Princess Bride. And the actual story of The Princess Bride is mired in like these histories of these two countries. And he's trying to kind of find like the, the fairy tale that's in it. And there's all these asides and footnotes where he's like, hey, I just cut out like this super long thing that was all about like some sort of like custom at the time and this other country thing. And it, it you know, uh, when it was written, it would have been a good joke, but you don't want to hear about it. It's bad. I cut it out. And then also <laughs> this stuff keeps sneaking in about this weird relationship with his uh, estranged son and 
if it was a movie, it would be very interesting. It would be very much like the like Nicolas Cage, the um, adaptation. Oh, God, adaptation is another one where that as an adaptation of The Orchid Thief is so fucking interesting, but we don't have time for that. The thing is, The Princess Bride, oh, as a postmodern book, is it's kind of dry. It's very uh, recursive. And as after having, you know, seen the movie as a kid, reading the book, it was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I didn't even know how to approach it because it was just so wildly different. And it was just really interesting to me, the idea that Rob Reiner looked at it, read it, and was like, okay, but what if we just took the fairy tale and we just left all that other shit out? And it's like, actually, yes, you're right. Good move. Good call. (laughs) (laughs) Solid decision. Like, that is, but that is an adaptation of the book like in spirit isn't it because the if the book is all about saying here's all this stuff that doesn't really work so i'm just going to sort of try and tell you this story cutting out all the boring shit and the film takes that a step further like that is still an adaptation within the spirit of the book isn't it kind of because it's you're not supposed to it's not like super clear how you're supposed to feel about the quote quote unquote william golding like the william golding character because there is this idea of him just sort of making these decisions of like you don't need to see this and how much we're supposed to take that at like face value also the book doesn't have a real ending that he does this thing where he's like well it couldn't hear but like let's be realistic about it they started you know moving and then the count's forces was still after them and then indigo's wound reopened and oh this is where s morgenstern's story stopped and it's just like what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> that, that postmodernism as a crutch for not knowing how to write a story. Um, and that was something else we talked about on If Beale Street Could Talk in that episode, where RJ said that he, he likes when books do that because he feels like it's realistic to life because life doesn't just stop and that it makes him think of, like, there really is a real story happening and it's like this book is just telling you a piece of it and everybody's lives are still going on. And that it's it's almost more realistic in that way. I'm between the two of you on that because I I like anything that sparks my imagination. And if a story just suddenly stops in a way that it keeps playing in my head, I will like that. But if it just stops and it feels like the the writer was too lazy and didn't know how to pull all the threads together, then it'll piss me off. You know? Yeah. No, I I agree with that. I think that's that's about all I had. <laughs> I think we've run. <laughs> I think we've run the run the gamut there. We ended on a positive note. That we move, of things that we really enjoy adaptations of, or at least semi-positive. I was kind of bashing the book, but God, The Princess Bride's a great movie. It's so, it's just so friggin' cute, and I love it a lot. It is really good. I watch it every every few years, and I watched it again last year, and it's it's just so solid. And every time I watch it, it gets better. Like it's one of those there are, there are books and movies and albums that you outgrow that you love when you're younger, and then you get to a certain point and you listen back to it, and you're like, "This is shit," and I was dumb. Yes, yeah, so many things. Yeah. <laughs> But The Princess Bride is not one of those. The Princess Bride is, I keep going back to it and I'm like, nope, the older I get, the this just seems to grow up with me and it t- seems to tell a slightly different story every time I go back to it. So I appreciate The Princess Bride a lot. Complete side note. This, uh, you say that this ended on a on a positive note for you complete because uh, right now i am sitting at my living room window and the view from my living room window is as follows i'm on the ground floor so i can see my garden and i can see the building in front of me and all of the back rooms to the building in front of me so now that you know the setting let me tell you a story that has just happened in the last five minutes oh gosh um, <laughs> <laughs> 
So about a month ago, I went to this bar uh, about two towns over from me, and there was this woman behind the bar that said, you live in, in Castle Court, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I do live in Castle Court. How do you know that? And she was just like, nah, 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 I won't tell you. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a pretty strange one. That's, yeah, it's a bit weird. She just came to the window opposite me. Oh, no. Um, and I now know for a 100% fact that she has seen me walking around completely fucking naked. <laughs> 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 um, oh, like, no. there, there is no... I know specifically because of the window Matthew, that she came Matt, to. Do there you, has been... you parade around nude with your with your blinds open? I, d- I don't have an awful lot of body shame. Like, you know, if you've got a problem with it, like, it's in my house. If you've got a problem with bodies, like, that's your problem. It's not my problem. But I just know that because of the window that she is at, that there has been at least two or three times when I've looked over and seen someone disappearing from that one. You know, if someone is actively looking at me, I'll be like, okay, fine. And I'll fucking, I'll, I'll like, leave the window. But I know for a f- I now know the story that was going on in her head when I met her a month ago. Uh, that's she very- was like, Ah, okay. <laughs> that's the that's the nude man from across the street. <laughs> yeah, I'm the I'm the ugly naked guy in her in in her friend's uh, experience. Okay, no, see, you can't say oh no body shame and then call yourself the ugly naked guy. Oh, uh, that's fair enough. Commit. I mean, I feel like ugly naked guy was was a powerful character in Friends lore. You know, like he. <laughs> was you know, he that character had power whenever they noticed him they would run over and everyone would be checking out ugly naked guy it's true ugly naked guy is probably more compelling character than ross <laughs> anyway join us next week for our first episode of our friends uh <laughs> friends retrospective yeah, yes our friend the friends cast um i'm sure there are many many podcasts about friends but how many of them are about the ugly naked dude who lived across the street that's what i want what i want is to fast forward because they won't be able to make it for a while but what i want is for people to start doing adaptations of sitcoms into other into other stories so you have yes. you have like an adapt it's like here's a here's a sitcom it's like a spin-off kind of i guess it's a spin-off but it would be like a, a, a Breaking Bad style like dark comedy drama a sort of HBO drama and it'd be Ugly Naked Guy the story the whole story of Friends told from the perspective of Ugly Naked Guy you know and the few times that they cross over I would watch that I would watch it in a heartbeat exactly and then, and then there would be people who'd be like nope this is a terrible adaptation this isn't how I assumed Ugly Naked Guy would be at all <laughs> <laughs> And I think that will, uh, on that note, <laughs> that will about do it for this episode of Ono oh Class. March Mini Madness, 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 Madness. Matt, thank you so much for blessing us with your presence. No problem. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving me an outlet for my rage about his dark materials. All right. Join us next week. And until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. <laughs> We love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'll do a goodbye song. Okay. Oh, we talked about books and we talked about feelings. Didn't really talk about feelings that much. I don't know why I said that we did. Have you ever realized you are the ugly naked guy of your neighborhood? You are the ugly naked guy, that's alright, that's kinda good. Anyway... Oh no, lit class! <laughs> yeah!